<laughs> just won't come out right. Um, of course, this doesn't, the books come as a terrible surprise. Shocking. Too beautiful. But I'd known uh, about the wrong decision about the award this year for some time, which of course has given me an opportunity to think about uh, whether I deserve it or not. Uh, I decided I deserve it. <laughs> but only because of the uh, backing of uh, the Grand Association and uh, thinking over the uh, 23 years that uh, it's taken to produce the grant volume so far. The rest of them will all be out by 1997. See you back here then. I'm very grateful for all the assistance I've had of those who were active in establishing uh, uh, the Grant Association. Uh, Clyde Walton and uh, Ralph G. Newman are the only remaining ones, and uh, I'm very conscious of all the assistance we had from Alan Evans and uh, from Bruce Catton, from T. Harry Williams, uh, Bell Wiley, and I think especially of E.B. Long, whose uh, connection with me went back just as far as that connection uh, with Mr. Newman. I accept this uh, with a great deal of pleasure and uh, would also like to point out that Mr. Newman sustaining anything so unlucrative as a grant association for 23 years means that he is a, certainly an active part of this award. Thank you very much. I'd like to, uh, if you can stand it, uh, begin with a little bit more of this uh, autobiography and get you back to 1962 before zeal to commemorate the American Civil War ebbed when the representatives of the Civil War Centennial Commissions of Ohio, New York, and Illinois met to decide on some appropriate honor for Grant whose life had significantly touched all three states. I understand they first discussed a statue on wheels and then decided on an equally impractical idea, one that was less likely to work, an addition of his papers. And uh, this is the situation I found when going to a Civil War centennial gathering fresh from teaching exactly the same class at 8, 9, and 11 at Ohio State University. If only they'd had one large lecture room, I could have killed all those students at once <laughs> instead of polishing them off in small doses. So the idea of editing the grant papers struck me as a particularly attractive idea, and uh, I was taken on, given the first assignment of finding some money to pay my salary. I still haven't found it. We persevere. When I began to organize the enterprise, I came up with a plan to create a comprehensive edition 
in 15 volumes. And I've long since forgotten how I arrived at that number 15, probably influenced by the statement in the Dictionary of American Biography that Grant wrote as little as possible, and William Heseltine's complaint about the almost complete lack of Grant manuscripts. These Civil War Centennial Commissions disseminated the 15-volume figure widely enough so that it still comes back to haunt us now that Lee put on his new uniform for that journey to Appomattox in volume 14. It means the rest has to be crammed into the next volume. It won't cram. In fact, we discovered that Grant was a prolific writer, one who rarely wrote at length but wrote often. He maintained friendships, conducted private business, waged war and served as president, all through handwritten communications. For more than two decades, those who received letters from him knew that he was a man of prominence whose handwriting deserved preservation. Instead of scratching for Grant letters, we had a flood to cope with. The project began without a clear rationale or justification, and certainly with no understanding by anyone of its dimensions. Instead, the rationale has developed over the years. In the first place, we edit the Grant papers because the man was important, because he played a major role in crucial historical events, both as general and president. He's so much a man of his time, embodying both the strengths and weaknesses of the American character, that to understand him is a step towards understanding millions of his countrymen. Second, we edit because Grant's invariably interesting. Although many of his contemporaries were impressed by Grant's embodiment of the ordinary, they saw the glimmers of the extraordinary which they were at a loss to explain. Though justly famed for his determination and ability to overcome obstacles, still at one time his greatest ambition was to secure an appointment uh, as an assistant professor of mathematics, at another to become a well-to-do Missouri farmer, and still later to become a Wall Street businessman. And of course, he achieved none of these goals. During his trip around the world in 1878, when asked by Prince von Bismarck about his military career, he responded that he never entered the army except with regret, and never left it except with pleasure. He once said that he had never quite forgiven himself for agreeing to serve as president. This unmilitary general and reluctant president continues to fascinate. For that matter, nobody else has forgiven him for uh, agreeing to serve as president. <laughs> Finally, the Grant Papers have proved worth doing because the man wrote well. Only poverty drove him to write for the general public, but he'd always taken pains in writing. During the Civil War, staff officers grumbled about waiting for Grant to complete campaign reports to headquarters. He insisted on drafting them himself, uh, allowing staff officers only to fill in dates and figures and to insert the relevant documents. He did not dictate messages, even on the battlefield, but wrote them himself. On one exceptional occasion, hurrying towards the guns of Shiloh, he sent verbal orders to General Lew Wallace, and these orders were misunderstand, uh, misunderstood, and uh, perhaps and probably deliberately, as no written message could have been. Early in the war, finding himself with an adjutant who had difficulty expressing himself clearly in writing because of his prior legal training, Grant drafted... <laughs> um, 
Grant drafted orders for his adjutant to sign, and this process rarely was reversed. Grant had confidence in his writing ability, the same sort of confidence that came through in his generalship. And in either case, was it unjustified? The outbreak of the Civil War found Grant clerking in Galena. Within eight years, a rapid series of promotion carried him to the highest rank in the U.S. Army, and from there to the White House, the youngest man inaugurated president to that time. In these crowded years, while primarily a man of deeds, he was a man of words as well. Owen Wister's essay on Grant opened with the statement, at the age of 39, Grant was an obscure failure in a provincial town. Had he read it, Grant might have responded with Wister's more famous line, when you call me that, smile. No biographer before or since has found much to celebrate in Grant's position on the eve of the Civil War as a salaried clerk in his father's leather goods store in Galena, virtually an employee of his younger brother Orville. After attending the first war meeting, Grant reported, I never went into our leather store after that meeting to put up a package or do other business. That sentence, placed in a section of the memoirs discussing the coming of war, may appear irrelevant, but Grant rarely indulged in the gratuitous, and the passage is best read as reflecting a revulsion for the leather business that went far beyond the actual statement. Whether life in Galena represented a personal failure for Grant is another matter. He had indeed witnessed the death of his dream of farming in Missouri, but he was hardly alone in succumbing to the Depression of 1857. Although some former Army associates had prospered in business and commerce, Sherman had failed as a banker in the same Depression, and his career as a Kansas lawyer ended after he lost the only case he ever tried. Hard times made for hard choices, and Grant had the opportunity to prosper in Galena if the family business expanded and he chose to grow with it. Our business here is prosperous, wrote Grant, and I have every reason to hope in a few years to be entirely above the frowns of the world pecuniarily. I hope to be a partner soon and am sanguine that a competency at least can be made out of the business. Advancement to partnership would follow the anticipated death of his brother Simpson, primarily responsible for establishing the Galena store, who was slowly dying of tuberculosis and finally succumbed in September 1861. Whatever thoughts Grant may have harbored about his own fate might have been tempered by knowing that a younger brother was perishing without ever establishing a family. In the meantime, Grant had an undemanding occupation and a stable family life, just what he'd resigned from the Army to achieve. If his quiet demeanor suggested disappointment with his lot in life, those who drew such a conclusion were merely speculating. Any shadow of melancholy may have reflected his brother's fate rather than his own, and Grant remained a quiet man on the battlefield and in the White House. One interpretation of Grant as an alcoholic, habitual loser who loathed himself simply ignores Grant himself, both the man at Galena and the commander at Vicksburg. The question of Grant at Galena involves far more than the outward circumstances of his life. It touches the underlying issue of what sort of man he really was. 
Grant lived in a society that loved the success story, and after all, that taste is still with us. His political supporters, therefore, trumpeted his rise from tanner boy and clerk to commander and president as part of an American ideal of rapid advancement, quite independent of qualification. How much have we heard about that lifeguard going to the White House? Ring changes on Grant's humiliation in Galena simply set the stage for his later glories. More important, however, the continuities rather than the disjunctions in Grant's life. To a surprising extent, Grant remained untouched by economic adversity or military and political achievement. Indeed, his capacity for maintaining balance furnishes a clue to his character. The liabilities of Galena should be placed in the perspective of Grant's assets at the commencement of the Civil War. To begin with, Grant had received, even though it was by accident, about the best education available to anyone in the United States. In an age when colleges emphasized classical languages and religion, the military academy taught mathematics and engineering. The faculty met its obligation to military science chiefly by teaching French, preparing cadets to read about Napoleonic campaigns and the literature of the engineering field. Sent unwillingly to West Point when an opportunity for an appointment accidentally came to his father's attention, Grant rejected the idea of a military career, but took advantage of the, mil uh, the academy library, maintained a middling class standing, and by virtue of graduation, became an officer and a gentleman. Having established the military academy, Congress began to consider dismantling it, and Cadet Grant followed the debates in 1840, hoping that Congress would abolish the academy and give him an honorable discharge. The question recurred for years, arising with particular force during the Civil War, when so many trained officers resigned from the U.S. Army to fight against it, vindicating the charge, or so it seemed, that West Point trained aristocrats unsuited for a democratic nation. Graduates re routinely received commissions in the small regular U.S. Army, filling all officers' positions, and opponents argued that such appointments should be open to all, not just academy graduates. Young officers often found military service unrewarding, of course, and it was far worse for the enlisted men. By 1850, one estimate put the number of recent immigrants in the ranks at 60%. As for the rest, nine-tenths enlisted on account of female difficulty. According to one exaggerated account, they went on to claim that 80% were drunk at the time of enlistment. A more sober account concluded that enlisted men were isolating themselves from society for all sorts of reasons. To maintain command discipline, young officers had to distance themselves from enlisted men and could do so by behaving as conventional gentlemen. One never found a gentleman in the U.S. Army unless he was an officer. For many West Point graduates, the status of gentlemen arose naturally from family background. For Grant, it meant putting some distance between himself and his self-educated, aggressive, ambitious father a process that Grant found most congenial. Far too independent to accept all conventions of military life, 
he did accept the drive towards refinement of manner and taste, which met his own priorities. Eleven years as an officer brought the inevitable mixture of sporadic exertion and long periods of tedium. His reading at West Point consisted largely of novels, not those of a trashy sort, he recalled, and I don't know where he would have gotten the trashy ones in the Academy Library anyway, and he remembered reading, among others, Bulwer-Lytton, James Fenimore Cooper, Sir Walter Scott, and Washington Irving. Some people think Irving is trashy, but at any rate, uh, Grant was pleased with what he'd read. At his first post, Jefferson Barracks, he studied mathematics, hoping for a recall to the academy to teach, and he also added history to his reading of novels. To reinforce his retention, he kept a journal in which he entered his thoughts about what he read. When a fellow officer packed these belongings for Louisiana, the journal was lost, and, according to Grant, often since a fear has crossed my mind lest the book might turn up yet and fall into the hands of some malicious person who would publish it. Unfortunately, that journal has not yet turned up. I can assure you, we would publish it. I don't care what's in it. It's going in. We think it's gone. Could be in the Chicago Public Library for all I know. <laughs> but, uh, love and marriage served to reinforce Grant's reading habits because Julia shared the young lieutenant's taste for novels and during the year preceding the Mexican War. They corresponded about their reading. Julia's crossed eyes made reading difficult. So after their marriage, Grant customarily read to her in the evenings, continuing the practice and including the children when they were old enough to join the circle of listeners. His oldest son, Fred, especially remembered Oliver Twist. By no means could Grant's literary background approach that of Lincoln, whose close and repeated readings of Shakespeare and the King James Bible had given him an ear for language, and whose career as a lawyer gave him experience in precision of wording. Lincoln's law partner commented on how little Lincoln read and how much he thought Grant's reading had been far broader and he had much less opportunity to make use of it. The Army gave Grant experience in paperwork and service as adjutant, quartermaster, and commissary at different times exposed him to the widest range of official routine. He learned the hard way just what the Army expected in written form, including the proper method of folding returns. One of the pleasures of a trip to our National Archives to study the pre-Civil War Army is to find out how much correspondence involved people who had not properly folded their returns. Um, for those unfamiliar with it, the returns are very big. Um, they are not only supposed to be filled out properly but folded, and they're like road maps that have never been folded before. It's very easy to make a mistake, and there are a lot of people in Washington waiting for an improperly folded return. You can imagine what somebody like Braxton Bragg can do with an improperly folded return. <laughs> At any rate, that's a great part of the pre-war army, and uh, another aspect of the pre-war correspondence is the emphasis on one subject per letter which is a practice that Grant thereafter generally followed, and Sherman, by the way, never did. And Grant also observed Army style with the multi-line closing, 
which is a formality so rigid that often an additional sheet was required for only signature and title. Whatever the circumstances directly involved in Grant's resignation from the Army, whether the gossip was correct in believing that it was a forced resignation because of excessive drinking, somehow it did not sap his confidence. Grant had done as well in the Army as other members of his class. When Grant achieved the full rank of captain as of August 1853, only four of the 39 members of his West Point graduating class already held this rank, three of them through quartermaster appointments, and I'm proud to announce that one of them was cashiered on the eve of the Civil War for misuse of public funds. Eighteen other members of his class who remained in service, including his brother-in-law, Fred Dent, and don't we always measure ourselves by how far ahead we are of our brothers-in-law, <laughs> held the rank of first lieutenant. When the Civil War began, none of Grant's classmates who remained in the Army had yet reached the rank of major. On May 24, 1861, Grant wrote to Adjutant General Lorenzo Thomas that in view of my age and length of service, I feel myself competent to command a regiment. And the sentiment appears warranted by the appointment of other members of his class to exactly that position. Sherman, uh, uh, from an earlier class, becoming a colonel in a regular uh, regiment, uh, a commission, of course, influenced some, in some degree by Senator Sherman. Grant's correspondence from the start of the Civil War has a special quality that reflects the man who wrote it. His orders and letters are direct and precise, unemotional and unostentatious. The cadet whose natural aptitude for mathematics compensated for difficulties learning French became the general whose written orders could not be misunderstood. And the grant correspondence supplies evidence of uh, a master of words. His letters are revealing because the man speaks directly without advanced thought, first draft, secretarial assistance, most express his thoughts just as they came to mind. And their remarkable clarity illustrates the clarity of Grant's own thought. And yet even the most important letters have crossed out words or sentences indicating a shift in thought or in emphasis. During the Civil War, he wrote his own orders, as many as 35 on a particularly busy day, sometimes writing while conferring with commanders or in the midst of conversing staff officers. And one of these officers noted that shells exploding nearby barely interrupted the writing of these dispatches. Sentences were clear even when circumstances were complex, and officers who received orders from Grant knew exactly what was expected. He had the gift of reducing complex issues to fundamentals and striking through the fog of circumstance. It might be useful, I think, at this point to look once again at a familiar example of Grant's style this is hardly going to be a revelation to you, the letter to Confederate General Buckner of February 16, 1862, a revelation only to those who missed that one army captured entire by Grant on the little quiz. But anyway, he writes on that occasion, yours of this date, proposing armistice and appointment of commissioners to settle terms of capitulation as just received. No terms except an unconditional and immediate surrender can be accepted. I propose to move immediately upon your works. Letter in full. Grant covered the entire ground in three sentences 
and the first merely restated the substance of the letter received from Buckner and indeed covered the subject more concisely than Buckner ever could or did. The second sentence, dependent upon the opponent's willingness to surrender, is placed in the passive voice. The final sentence, declaring Grant's own intention, shifts to the active voice to erase any doubt that Grant would indeed move immediately upon your works. Both the first and third sentences use forms of the word propose. In the first, restating what Buckner intended to do. In the last, expressing Grant's intentions. This word propose is one that recurs in Grant's major writings. On May 11, 1864, from Spotsylvania, he wrote to Major General Henry W. Halleck, I'm now sending back to Belle Plains all my wagons for a fresh supply of provisions and ammunition and propose to fight it out on this line if it takes me all summer. On reflection, he crossed out that word me, a word that not only added nothing to the sentence but instead diminished its impact by calling attention to the dogged determination of the commander while ignoring that of the men who stood with him. Grant had already used that same line in its more familiar form a half hour earlier in writing to Secretary of War Edwin M. Stanton. I propose to fight it out on this line if it takes all summer. Now Grant rarely repeated himself, but in this case he apparently recognized immediately this was a special phrase. Uh, when Grant says something twice, there's a reason for that too. By the end of that summer, of course, Grant had moved to a different line, one south of Richmond, uh, encircling Petersburg, one that in his judgment better met the purpose of immobilizing Lee's Army of Northern Virginia, but had not contradicted his statement of willingness to fight it out on this line. Propose makes a late dramatic appearance in Grant's preface to his personal memoirs, which opens with the quoted motto, man proposes and God disposes. Grant follows with, there are but few important events in the affairs of men brought about by their own choice. Surveying his remarkable career from Mount McGregor, Grant echoed the bewilderment of contemporaries called upon to appraise the triumphs and tragedies of this undemonstrative man, and he once again maintained the distinction in that word propose between intent and capability. One scholar who sought to determine if North and South used a different vocabulary isolated five words as more likely to appear in the diary or letter of a Confederate officer than his Union counterpart. Might be fun to have you guess them, but I'm going to tell you anyway. These are the key Confederate officer words. Kind, noble, gentleman, brave, gallant. And I'm sure you could have guessed them if you're at all familiar with the field. But then he turned to 31 letters uh, from Robert E. Lee to his wife and 23 letters from Grant to his wife and found, of course, Lee used the keywords uh, 10 times, could not find any one of them in one of Grant's letters. Greater disparities would emerge by looking for the word Christian, which is a favorite with Lee and almost unused by Grant. Both wrote tender and affectionate letters home, but the letters differ as much as the writers. Mark Twain once planned to publish Grant's 
letters to his wife as a follow-up to Grant's memoirs, and the plans fell through, and they've been uh, unavailable until uh, used for the first time in our edition. And it's a remarkable correspondence which has running through it a great deal of gentlemanly restraint. He's affectionate towards his wife and children, uh, but the letters are not intensely private. And this is characteristic of the man. The man uh, abhorred unclean conversation. Lincoln became famous for telling dirty stories, and Grant for refusing to listen to them. A little sidelight on interactions during the Civil War. But Grant is one who maintains his gentlemanly standards, and he's unfailingly deferential to women. However he might appear to his Confederate enemies, He's really got quite a core of gentleness, and I think you can get an idea of this from a letter that he wrote to a, a woman who uh, was concerned about her sons during the Vicksburg campaign. This is April 11th, it's to Mrs. S.F. Bricker, and Grant writes, I've just this moment read your letter of the 10th of March in relation to your two sons in the 120th Regiment Ohio Volunteers this regiment is now on the Mississippi River below Vicksburg, and I cannot see your sons immediately as you request. But I will take the first opportunity of doing so and do all in my power to cheer them up. Can you imagine General Patton going down to cheer those boys up? I have no doubt, however, that Grant went. He went on, I regret exceedingly that your husband was not permitted to visit them after he got so near as Memphis. My orders are against citizens visiting the army in general, but I would always make an exception in favor of those who have children in the service. A letter to Assistant Secretary of War Charles A. Dana, this is July 15, 1864, I think has something to do uh, uh, with exposing uh, Grant's generosity. I'm sorry to see such a disposition to condemn a brave old soldier as General Hunter is known to be without a hearing. He's known to have advanced into the enemy's country towards their main army, inflicting a much greater damage upon them than they have inflicted upon us, with double his force and moving directly away from our main army. Hunter acted, too, in a country where we had no friends, whilst the enemy have only operated uh, in territory where, to say the least, many of the inhabitants are their friends. If General Hunter has made war upon the newspapers in West Virginia, probably he's done right. In horsewhipping a soldier, he's laid himself subject to trial. But nine chances out of ten, he's only acted on the spur of the moment under great provocation. I fail to see yet that General Hunter has not acted with great promptness and great success. Even the enemy give him great credit for courage and congratulate themselves that he will give them a chance of getting even with him. And I think this edges over from the point of generosity to the idea of Grant's quiet sense of humor, which comes out quite early in the Civil War letters. Uh, he took command at Ironton, Missouri, in August 1861, down in the uh, southeast Missouri area, and then reported to headquarters that uh, he did not expect any attack from the enemy. Explain, then adding, it's fortunate too, if this is the case, 
for many of the officers seem to have so little command over their men, and military duty seems to be done so loosely, that I feel at present our resistance would be in the inverse ratio of the number of troops to resist with. Somewhat later, Grant complained that he could not find enough loyal men in southeast Missouri to save Sodom. What in the world had placed Sodom on his mind, I don't know. It's not a bad phrase anyway. I don't think they could be found there today. In June 1864, Grant wrote to uh, General Halleck, your letter stating that Generals Rosecrans and Curtis are calling for more troops is received. I'm satisfied you'd hear the same call if they were stationed in Maine. The fact is, the two departments should be merged into one and some officer who does not govern so largely through a secret police system as Rosecrans does put in command. I do think the best interest of the service demands that Rosecrans should be removed and someone else placed in that command. It makes but little difference who you assign. It would be an improvement. <laughs> In his orders to uh, George H. Thomas to attack Hood at Nashville, Grant showed that he could combine informality with directness. In brief telegraphic communications, he combined instruction with the rationale for his plans. He also managed to convey impatience without direct rebuke. On the 2nd of December in 1864, Grant heard from Stanton that the president feels solicitous about the disposition of Thomas to lay in fortifications for an indefinite period. Now, with this encouragement, Grant began his string of telegrams to Thomas. If Hood is permitted to remain quietly about Nashville, you'll lose all the road back to Chattanooga and possibly have to abandon the line of the Tennessee. Should he attack you, it's all well. But if he does not, you should attack him before he fortifies. Armand put in the trenches, your quartermaster employs, the citizens, etc. Then, uh, three days later, on December 5th, Hood should be attacked where he is. Time strengthens him in all probability as much as it does you. Next day, attack Hood at once and wait no longer for a remount of your cavalry. Now this Grant explained uh, to Sherman, I could stand it no longer and gave the order without reserve. Then the following day, Grant sent the first telegram to Washington suggesting the removal of Thomas. But two days later, he's back to telegraphing to Thomas. It looks to me evident the enemy are trying to cross the Cumberland River and are scattered. Why not attack at once? Why not? He's already been told to do it. By all means, avoid the contingency of a foot race to see which you or Hood can beat to the Ohio. Now is one of the fairest opportunities ever presented of destroying one of the three armies of the enemy. If destroyed, he can never replace it. Use the means at your command, and you can do this and cause a rejoicing that will resound from one end of the land to the other. On December 11th, if you delay attack longer, the mortifying spectacle will be witnessed of a rebel army moving for the Ohio River, and you'll be forced to act accepting such weather as you find. It's changed from the cavalry remount to what? A nice storm. Uh, such, accepting such weather as you find. Let there be no further delay. Hood cannot stand even a drawn battle so far from his supplies of ordnance stores. 
If he retreats and you follow, he must lose his material and much of his army. I am in hopes of receiving a dispatch from you today announcing that you've moved. Delay no longer for weather or reinforcements. Well, that's the end. Grant could do no more. Um, two days later, he ordered uh, Logan to Nashville with orders to relieve Thomas, and then Grant himself started for Nashville the following day, stopping in Washington after learning that Thomas had indeed attacked um, on December 15th. I think of particular interest in this series of communications is the explanation to Sherman. This, I could stand it no longer, indicating that Grant understood his own emotional reaction to delay caused by Thomas's insistence on waiting at that point for the cavalry. Now, Thomas's smashing victory at Nashville, when he finally attacked, has sometimes been interpreted as a rebuke to Grant for these impatient orders to attack, followed by plans to uh, supersede his dilatory commander. This assumes that Thomas would have attacked anyway um, when completely ready and that Grant's orders were irrelevant to the outcome of the battle. Well, that's perhaps true. But there's no assurance that Thomas would have launched a timely and effective attack without prodding. And his comatose behavior through early 1865 rouses further suspicions about the irrelevance of Grant's orders. Effective or not, they're superbly phrased. Now, these Simple orders to Thomas illustrate his ability to cut through complexities to the very heart of that military decision. The responsibilities of command required mastery of the innumerable details of bringing an army to some decisive action in which the capabilities of thousands of individuals could be used to the maximum against the opposing forces. Because of these complexities, Grant thought through his options and observers who saw him in the midst of battle seated under a tree, quietly whittling, were divided about whether or not he was fulfilling or avoiding these responsibilities. By picking up a sword to lead a charge, galloping along the lines to inspire his men, or engaging in discussion um, about the merits of various plans, he would, he would inevitably have lost that power to concentrate. The power to concentrate which is Grant's strength, led to reducing those problems to fundamentals and permitting him then to issue relatively simple instructions. This same simplicity that's found in Grant's writing appeared in every other aspect of his life. Grant's silence before he announced his conclusions bewildered staff officers who could not follow his thought process. As Henry Adams quipped, they were not sure that he did think. Words flowing on paper in a thousand field dispatches contradict that assumption, as does his rapid adjustment to changing conditions in the May encirclement of Vicksburg and the lightning strokes of the Appomattox campaign. Meeting Grant at the end of January 1865, Confederate Vice President Alexander H. Stevens was at first disappointed by Grant's appearance and bearing his informality of manner, and his terseness in conversation. Over two days, Stevens came to view Grant as one of the most remarkable men he'd ever met and concluded that Grant was not aware of his own power. In this, Stevens expressed a common view of Grant as the possessor of a mysterious strength concealed behind 
a facade of ordinariness. Grant was a man completely in control of himself, superbly equipped to control others. This strength lies behind Grant's writing and provides the challenge in editing his correspondence. Thank you.